Very good morning again to you. Sorry for the rest of you. <laughs> Glorious morning. Um, reminds me, just as I move the microphone over, how much um, we often overlook it the services of people who aren't seen and uh, people who aren't seen to make sure that people up here are heard and just really appreciate the ministry of those who are behind the scenes and the, the sound here and the words there. Uh, thank God for, for faithful servants of Christ. So thank you very much. It's a bit of a gloomy city, isn't it? <laughs> this town of Amos. Uh, we've uh, been taking our tour of the town. Appreciate you staying with me. Some of you may have lagged behind. I hope you've caught up and the tour party is all still together. We entered the town, if you recall, into that rather unpleasant opening suburb, as it were, of, uh, of six rather harsh spires, narrow, short, small, rising up the six judgments against the surrounding nations. And then a slightly larger one, judgment against Jerusalem, Judah, and then the much bigger one, the judgment against Israel, took us to the end of chapter 2, the eight oracles of judgment. And then we moved into a, a more open, more sprawling neighborhood, three sermons of rebuke in chapters 3, and second one, chapter 4, and then 5 and 6. And as we walked through that neighborhood, we listened to those sermons of rebuke, and we saw God holds his people particularly accountable because with privilege comes responsibility. We looked at the scariness of God's judgment and the seriousness of God's judgment. We looked at the certainty of God's judgment. You remember we ended off that uh, tour in that neighborhood with chapters 5 and 6, which was the funeral dirge. God doesn't like this roaring. He doesn't like this pouncing and devouring prey. He must do it, but it's his unpleasant task, as it were. And so in chapter 5, you remember when God through the prophet expresses this funeral dirge at the same time he says seek me seek me seek good and not evil that you may live but Israel will not repent and so remember in the middle of chapter 5 we have that terrible foretelling of the day of the Lord and they looked forward to that day it's not going to be a good day it's not going to be a good day and then verses 24 21 to 24 the center of the passage the center of the book, where God explains that his issue with them is that they, as his people, were not, on the one hand, living right before him, and on the other hand, were not living right towards others. No, no righteousness and no justice, and so God hated all of their religious activity. And then finally, yesterday, we looked at the first of the five visions of judgment. We looked at the first four of them. I mentioned that the first four of these judgments are in two pairs. The first pair show the kindness of God in his mercy and restraint. And probably these visions sort of give an overall picture of what's happening. They're not chronological. But you have these two visions, the locust swarm and then the fire, where, where basically God is about to judge. And Amos says, please, Jacob is so small. And God, you're the God of the small and the hopeless and the poor and the humble and the needy. And you've accused your people of oppressing them and squashing them. Are you going to squash Jacob now? And so the Lord relents twice over. Then we have the final two of those, that forced first four, the second pair. And there's a difference here because it's not 
It's not Amos who initiates speech, it's Jehovah. He asks a question and Amos responds. And then Jehovah gives his verdict. And it's a verdict of judgment. It's not an offer of mercy any longer. And maybe Amos says, well, no, Lord, are you sure you're going to do this right? Will the judge of all the earth do right? Lord, will you really do right? Is this really the right thing to do? And so the Lord holds up the plumb line. God is completely righteous. His standards are righteous. He's not going to do anything which is not righteous. So he holds up the plumb line to test Israel. And Israel fails the test. Amaziah is given as an example. Remember that little interlude, verses 10 to 17. And Amaziah representing the priest and the power, the religion and the the wealth of Israel at the time. It's as though the plumb line was held against him. Amaziah failed. And he is, uh, judgment is pronounced against him. And then the final vision of those four. Of course, the vision of the summer fruits. <laughs> they were so complacent. They were so foolish. They thought everything was fine. So they brought their summer fruit to the shrines of Bethel as though, God, look at this summer fruit. This is the first fruits. And it's the beginning of a harvest. And God says, no, it's not. It's the end the end of my people and possibly as i mentioned to you the word for summer fruit and the word for end in hebrew is similar so maybe god is also playing on the words there and he's saying no no this isn't the beginning this is an actual fact the end and with that we come and then we have this uh, this this picture of the judgment in the second part of chapter eight and how terrible it is the day that god stops speaking when the lion's roaring there's still some hope but when the lion is silent no beauty No purity, no vitality, no strength. And people can stagger backwards and forwards, but God will not be found. With that, we come to chapter 9. Chapter 9 divides into two sections, and the first section is the fifth vision. Make sure I keep your little notebooks open so that I stay with you. The first vision is verses 1 to 10 of chapter 9. Now, this vision is... uh, different from the other four visions. The other four visions all begin with similar words. Thus the Lord showed me, or the third vision says, thus he showed me. So in the first four visions, Amos is shown something by God. This fifth vision, Amos doesn't, isn't shown something by God, but we read, I saw the Lord standing behind the alt- beside the altar. Maybe you'll say to him, well, the, the, surely the plumb line, he saw the Lord. Yes, but this is different. Clearly, the way that this is structured, this is different. There's an indication that in this last vision, we are coming to something of great weight and importance. Um, Hubbard, in his commentary, says this, Gone is the time for object lessons, pleas, repentance, and dialogue. Come is the time for the fullness of the judgment, whose nature and need dominate the book, to be released. So there's something special about this vision, something we've been waiting for this, and judgment is about to be released. In terms of a division of the sections, I've given you there three, uh, a threefold division. First of all, verses 1 to 4, the judgment. The judgment, verses 5 to 6, the judge. The judge, and then verses 7 to 10, the covenant. So the judgment, the judge, and the covenant. Verses 1 to 4, the judgment. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. Remember, he's standing beside not the altar in Jerusalem, but the altar at Bethel. Uh, One of the shrines, chapter 3, verse 14, that has been referred to already. A false shrine erected for worship. God stands at the place of worship in his opening act of judgment. 
And I think that's a very important principle here, dear friends, that it is in the place of worship, the sort of center of our lives that everything radiates out from, they compromised in the area of worship. And because they compromised in the area of worship, that compromise spread to their whole lives. Their lives deteriorated as a result of that. And as the Lord stands by the altar, notice he calls for a severe judgment. Smite the capitals, the tops of the pillars, so that the thresholds will shake, so that the whole temple, the whole shrine will be shaken, and break them so they collapse, the supporting capitals, break them on the heads of them all. Then I will slay the rest of them with the sword. They will not have a fugitive who will flee or a refugee who will escape. You may remember chapter 3, verse 14, we saw God doing two things, punishing the place and then punishing the people. We get the same thing here. God punishes the place and he punishes the people. He goes to the place of worship and he destroys that. And then he looks at the people who worship and he destroys them. So he deals with the place and then he deals with the people. And the second part of verse 1 really introduces the next three verses because the second part of verse 1 says, they will, not have a ref- Sorry, they will not have a fugitive who will flee or a refugee who will escape. Nobody is going to escape my judgment. And verses 2 to 4 basically tease out that nobody is going to escape my judgment. The central thought of these verses is, I am going to judge, and you can try and run away from me, and you can try and hide, but you will not be able to do so. And please, as I read these verses, please try and catch again. I've asked you over and over again, catch the weight of these words. You know, we mustn't read this like some sort of science textbook. Imagine you are one of the people of Israel listening to Amos as he speaks this message for the very first time. And you've eventually got to the point of being almost convinced that he's right. And then he says this, Though they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent, and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword, that it slay them. They can try and dig a deep hole, go down to the place of the dead, but God's hand is just going to reach down and pluck them out. They can try and fly up to the heavens on wings, but God will just pluck them down from there. Maybe they're going to go and run to Mount Carmel, highest point in Israel, and a good place to hide from God, remote, distant. God will search them and find them. Maybe they'll dive down deep, deep, deep into the deepest part of the sea, and God is going to appoint a serpent to bite them in the depths of the sea. Maybe they are taken into captivity alive, and they say, thank goodness we've escaped the judgment of God. And God says, in captivity, the sword is going to slay you. Hubbard calls this a pledge of divine pursuit. A pledge of divine pursuit. God is going to chase them. And when God chases, God finds. You know, I'm not a great <laughs> suspense movie person. I don't know if any of you like suspense movies. I hate it. But, you know, he has the picture. Some crazy guy with an axe has come into a house. And everybody's hiding. And one by one, though they hide in the bedroom, under the beds, in the cellar, up in the, in the cellar, up in the attic, though they close their eyes and pretend he's not there, one by one, he finds them all. And that's the picture here, that God will search for every single one of these people, these disobedient ones, and he will punish them. 
As I read that passage, did it remind you of any other passage in the Bible, in the Old Testament? Say again? Jonah. Okay, very good. I hadn't thought of Jonah. Jonah, I'm going to get away from God. <laughs> That's a stupid thing to try and do. All right. Psalm 139. Can I just read Psalm 139? Well done. Psalm 139. It's remarkably similar. Remember, God wrote both of them, so we shouldn't be too surprised. Psalm 139. From verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike, alike to you. The difference is in Psalm 139, the psalmist is saying all of these things to say, you know, God knows me, he loves me, he cares for me. I can never get away from him. In Amos chapter 9, it's, I want to get away from him, but I can't get away from him. And the words end in verse 4 with that terrifying sentence. And so often these little sections in Amos end off with a powerful little punch. And I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. Can you imagine how terrifying it must be that God looks upon a person not to bless them, but to harm them? Just taking a walk this morning, going over my notes, thinking through this and imagining a little boy playing in the sandpit over there with a little girl and dad's watching and the little boy knows dad is watching and he looks across at dad and dad is looking and smiling and in dad's eyes there is this, this, this picture of love and warmth and approval and the little boy goes on playing. Then he pulls the little girl's hair, she starts crying, turns around and looks at dad. Same dad, same face, different eyes. You're in trouble because of what you've done. So that's a little bit of a picture. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. That's the ironic benediction. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. That's the Lord looking with favor and his eyes want to bless. But here, it's the angry father. His eyes are eyes that are going to do evil to the people who call themselves by the name of God. Then there's a change of focus. We'll move away from the judgment to the judge in verses 5 and 6. The Lord, Jehovah of hosts, the one who touches the land so that it melts, and all those who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises up like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt. The one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and has founded his vaulted dome over the earth. He who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord, Jehovah, is his name. Now, I don't know if you've picked up, but there are actually three of these sort of little hymn sections in the book of Amos. Just flick back quickly, and I won't spend much time. I was going to do this as a, a general thing at some stage. But let me just mention to you, chapter 4, verse 13 is the first one. Chapter 4, verse 13. In verse 12, remember those terrible words, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. It's not going to be a pleasant meeting. Then verse 13, for behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his thoughts, he who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord of hosts is his name. And then if you just turn across to chapter 5, so very next chapter, verse 8, 
there's the second of these little short hymns. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and changes deep darkness into morning, who also darkens day into night, who calls the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. Jehovah is his name. It is he who flashes forth with destruction upon the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. Probably I should have stopped at, sorry, the end of verse 8. The Lord is his name. Because each one of these little hymns, these little hymn sections, ends off with the Lord is his name. And then the third one of these hymn sections is the passage we're looking at, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 9. What is Amos doing here? It could be that Amos is using one of the hymns that were in use even at the temple. Because remember, this is a very clever book. This is a very cleverly constructed town. It might be dismal and dark and gloomy, but it's, it's so cleverly constructed. And so it could be that what Amos is doing is he's taking one of the hymns of the shrines of Bethel, where they would sing the right hymns. You know, very, very orthodox. Um, Matthew chapter 7, Lord, in your name we cast out demons. So we're orthodox. You didn't know me, says Jesus. Maybe the same thing in Bethel. Very orthodox, singing the right hymns. Maybe he takes those songs and he places them in strategic places in his prophecy to say, you know this God that you're singing about? You're singing about him as though he's happy with you. Would you be happy to keep on singing those songs if you knew that he was angry with you? And so the three songs that he includes, here, well, three, it's probably maybe one song, the three stanzas from those songs, each of them focus upon the greatness of God and the power of God and the, the judging fury of God. Just have a look at this one for a few moments. Um, the Lord of God, the Lord God of hosts, or the Lord Jehovah of hosts, the one who touches the land so that it melts and all of those who dwell in it mourn, We've had those sorts of pictures before already in Amos. We've had the morning. We've had the land melting. All of it rising up like the Nile and subsiding like the Nile of Egypt. Back in chapter 8, um, when God says, I'm going to bring destruction, he talks about the world, verse 8 of chapter 8, being tossed up and down like the Nile. The one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and has founded his vaulted dome upon the earth, over the earth, the one who has called the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth, Jehovah is his name. The way I expressed it yesterday was that Israel had made Jehovah into their tribal deity, sort of genie in a bottle. You polish it up with a little bit of good Christian service on Sunday and God will do all sorts of good things for you. Out he comes. That's what they thought of Jehovah. And Amos is reminding them who he is. Uh, he's got a building that's so big that he set the foundations on earth and the, the, the roof is somewhere up there up there in the heavens. Amos is saying to Israel, this is the God that you're dealing with. Do you know what you're doing? Do you know who you're messing with? And then verses 7 to 10, the covenant, the judgment, the judge, and now the covenant. Are you not like the sons of Ethiopia or Cush? Some versions Cush, some versions Ethiopia. Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? Have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kephtor and the Arameans? From Kerr, behold, the eyes of the Lord Jehovah are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Now, it's interesting here that up to now, God has been speaking about his people. Now he speaks to his people, and he compares them with other peoples and other nations, and he chooses three other nations. Nation number one, the Ethiopians or the Cushites. Nation number two, the Philistines. And nation number three, the Arameans. Now, why are these three nations selected? Who are the Cushites or the Ethiopians? Well, they were a distant pagan people 
far from any influence of the law, far from any possible revelation of God other than the revelation in nature. So far away. The Philistines and the Arameans were neighbors of Israel. Historically, the Philistines were inveterate enemies of Israel and Judah. The Arameans to the north, Damascus, Syria, were sometimes enemies and sometimes allies. So you see what God has done. He's chosen three different groups of people. The faraway pagan Cushites who never ever would hear the law of God. The, the Philistines who would have known of the law of God through Israel, but they hated Israel. And the Arameans who today they're friends and tomorrow they're enemies. And he compares Israel with those three. Now what is he doing? Why this comparison? They're all heathen nations. What Jehovah is doing is he's basically doing this, dear friends. He's saying, Israel, having neglected God, having perverted his worship, Israel is no different from the heathen nations around her. And in a sense, remember how the book started. Eight oracles of judgment, and Israel's just one on the list. <laughs> She's just one of the, like all of the other ones. All of the war crimes nations, first six oracles. Israel, oracle number eight. She's just like them, one on the list. Having perverted the worship of God, Israel is no different from the heathen nations. Notice what God says about them in the second part of verse 7. First part of verse 7, he says, you're just like the Ethiopians, you're just like the sons of Cush. And then he says, have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt? Did I not bring the Philistines from Kephtor and the Arameans from Kerr? Again, what is God saying? We ask the question, Lord, what are you saying here? Well, he's saying, I brought the Philistines from Kephtor. Kephtor, I think, was uh, Crete, which is where the Philistines originally came from. God is the one who moved them from there to here. God is the one who moved the Arameans from Kerr to where they settled. And God is the one who moved Israel from Egypt to the promised land. With me so far? That's not God's point. God's point is, you know, Israel, in your current situation, listen carefully, in your current situation, having compromised worship and neglected my law, you are no different from any of them. And listen carefully. My deliverance from Egypt is of no greater significance than my moving the Philistines from Kephtor or the Arameans from Kerr. Nothing more than merely sort of a translocation of a nation. Remember, mind reader, head reader. Does it make sense? Yes? No? Thank you so much. An honest, an honest Irish lady. Thank you. Because remember, like Judah, they were saying, we've got the covenant, you know, we've got the law, we've got the shrines, we've got God. So they were saying, you know, the covenant is what secures us. And the covenant, God took us out of Egypt, he brought us here, he's not going to let us down now. What God is saying is that if you're living the life that you're living at the moment, if you've so compromised worship and you've so compromised your lives, if you have hypocritical worship and total social injustice, if these things are true of you, then in actual fact, my deliverance from Egypt to bring you from Egypt into the promised land is of no greater religious significance than me moving the Philistines from Kaftor to where they are and the Arameans from Kerr to where they are. So there's no, don't think that you can put any confidence in, I picked you up from here and put you there because I picked up the Philistines and put them there and I picked up the Arameans and put them there and you're no different, you're just like them. 
Hazer. Yeah? Okay? Because it, 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 it actually gets very, very personal and, um, and relevant to us here. You see, they trusted in the covenant. They trusted in the covenant. But God is saying, as long as they continued in their sins, disregarding the God of the covenant, disregarding his laws, acting with hypocrisy, living lives that deny the covenant, as long as that was true, the covenant act of God's deliverance was nothing more than an act of history. Nothing more than an act of history, just like his many other acts in history. Now this is where it becomes, I think, uh, remarkably personal and you still think, Lord, you are so clever. I've been preaching through Hebrews. And for many of us, Hebrews 6 is a problem, isn't it? And can you lose your salvation? What are these people falling aside? And then earlier, I think it's chapter 4, they, they were destroyed in the wilderness because of their disobedience. And I think the answer to that is that our, it's, it's exactly what's happening here. You see, they trusted in the covenant as far as they were concerned. Their security was... Way back then, God saved us. So because God saved us way back then, we're fine today. I think the lesson in Hebrews chapter 6 and the lesson in here is, the issue is not, did you trust what happened way back then? The question is, are you trusting God right now? You see, they were trusting a historic act. God says you need to trust a living God. How many Christians today, how many people do you know who say, you say, hi, are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. So you at the nightclub. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Uh, you looked fairly drunk. Yeah, no, I'm a Christian. Heard a little bit about you in terms of your relationship with your girlfriend, boyfriend. You guys living together? Yeah, you're a Christian. I'm a Christian. Why are you a Christian? Well, you know, 14 years ago, this guy came to our school, preached. I went forward. I received Jesus. I know I'm a Christian because back then, I was saved. I'm trusting a historic act. You can't trust a historic act, dear friends. That's what Israel did. They trusted a historic act. God delivered us from Egypt. You have to trust a present God today. So Hebrews 6, I think, and Amos 9 have got this remarkable similarity. You can't trust a covenant. You, you never trust a covenant. You trust a God. And you don't trust him for what happened back then. You trust him for what happens today. So you've got to live out the reality of the covenant today. And Israel wasn't doing that. So God says, because you're not living out the reality of the covenant today, you are exactly like the Philistines and the Arameans. And my covenant deliverance means as much as, as my moving Philist the Philistines from, from Crete to Philistia. Does that all make sense? Does it all fit together? I think it's a wonderful way to see the unity, the unity of the Bible. All right, verse 8, God says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful nation. The angry father is looking at the child, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. And then a wonderful word. I'm not sure if you have it in your versions. Um, nevertheless. Nevertheless. One of the best words in the Bible is the little word, but. But. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, raised us up. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, but nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. There's this little glimmer of promise, a little glimmer of hope. We're walking through this. This is a gloomy section of the town. It really is. I mean, this is probably the darkest section of the town because God is standing by the altar and he's about to exercise, execute judgment, and it's just horrible. The buildings are tall and high, 
and the streets smell. There's no light. The windows are all shuttered up. It's a horrible place, but, but just there's a little bit of sunlight shining through there because God says, I'm not going to entirely destroy. And it's as though that sunlight beckons us to walk along this street and see what's on the other side. Verse 9 says, I am commanding and I will shake the house of Israel among the nations. As grain is shaken on a sieve, there's Amos the agriculturalist. The grain is shaken, it's mixed up with stones, but not a kernel will fall to the ground. I'm going to make sure that anybody who has responded to my three calls in chapter 5, seek me, seek me, seek good, anybody who's responded to that, I'm going to make sure they don't fall to the ground. I'm going to look after them. Anybody who's actually listened to my voice and turned, I'm going to make sure I look after them. There'll be a little remnant that will survive. But verse 10, all the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say the calamity will not overtake or confront us. Remember one of the lessons of Amos is the people were so complacent. They didn't think anything was wrong. They were just going to church and singing the songs and doing business and living life as normal. They thought everything was fine. So complacent. You're going to die by the sword, says the Lord. And so the major burden of the prophecy of Amos ends. We've gone through most of the city, dear friends. God has spoken, judgment is pronounced. The sins of the people have been laid out clearly. God has just decided he's going to judge them. And Amos would be a book without hope. It would be a town without beauty. Except there's a second part of chapter 9. So as we walk along this narrow, smelly, dark, and I said this, just a beacon of light, walk forward a little bit and turn the corner. What do you see? There's a beautiful citadel. It's just rising up on, on mown grass. It's light, so contrasting. With anything we've seen so far, it's, it's spectacular. There's, there's trees and there are birds and there are flowers. What is it? It's hope, it's promise. And it's blessing. Verse 11. In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. That they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations that are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Behold days are coming declares the Lord. When the plowman will overtake the reaper. God is a good poet isn't he? I forgot what a serious bunch Irish folk are. <laughs> Look at this poetry. When the plowman will overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved, also I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make garments, sort gardens and eat their fruit, I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land which I have given them, says Jehovah your God. Do you ever wonder how God says some things? Yeah? How did God say that? Do you think God likes the gloomy city? Yes, no. Simple answer. I think he doesn't like it. It's a necessary gloomy city, but he doesn't like it. And God has not smiled. He has not smiled once to the end of verse 10 of chapter 9. But I think in verse 11 he starts smiling. In that day. 
I'm going to make things different. It's not the way it's always going to be. I'm going to build a little, not a little, I'm going to build a huge, beautiful citadel just at the exit of the city for people to see. Now notice several things about this. First of all, we ask the question, so let me just back up a moment. Um, I won't go into detail, but if you'd like to give some thought, there's wonderful, I mean, this is obviously so different. I mean, it's just like, where did this come from? <laughs> this, this is so totally contrasting. Where did this come from? But there's also remarkable similarities, and you might like to at some stage just spend a half an hour and, and see the way so many of the themes from the first um, nine and a half chapters are now picked up in the last half chapter. So, for example, buildings are broken down in the first nine and a half, but they're raised in the second nine, in the second half of chapter nine. Uh, vineyards are planted, but you're not going to get any wine from them. Second half, vineyards are planted and you drink from them. First half, wine symbolizes their decadence and their disregard for the poor and their walling in luxury. Second half of chapter 9, wine symbolizes the joyful celebration of the goodness of God. So again, it's just such a clever book. First nine and a half chapters, you've got these threads which are, are, are negative threads, but in chapter 9, second part, these negative threads are all pulled together into a wonderful positive promise. So I'll leave you to that to explore if you like. We ask the question, what is that day? In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David. Historically, what's going to happen soon? Well, um, at a short time, in a few years, Israel are going to be taken into captivity by the Assyrians. About 140 years after that, a similar thing is going to happen to Judah, the southern kingdom. They are going to be taken captive by the Babylonians. And 70 years after that, Cyrus, a Median king, is going to be raised up by God, and he is going to pronounce an edict allowing the captives to return to their land, the captive Jews, excuse me, under Ezra and Nehemiah, and they're going to rebuild the wall, and the temple is going to be rebuilt. There's going to be a day of return. So God is going to judge his nation, and there's going to be a day of return from captivity. Could this be the day that he is referring to here? In that day, I will. Aha, is that the day of of, of returning under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah? Probably not, for several reasons. Some of the details of the return of the Jews are very different from this. It was attended by all sorts of setbacks and opposition from their enemies. There was disunity amongst the people. There was compromise of life amongst the people. The temple that was rebuilt was so poor that the old people, when they looked at it, did what? They wept. Oh, is that the best we can do? I remember the... I remember Solomon's temple. It was so glorious. Is this the best we can do? So, and there was no king of David sitting on the throne. You see, all of the return of the Jews back to their land was almost a damp squid. Is that a... Yeah. yeah. Does that work here? All right. You know, it just... And so, they would have, is this all we've got to expect? No, that day has got to be another day. It can't be that day. What is... That day, in that day. So these verses have a, a future hope. These verses sort of point forward towards some other day. And the prophet spoke of that day in two senses. Number one, the day of great judgment, but also the day of great blessing when, when God would restore the world. It's the day, for example, of Isaiah chapter 11 and that beautiful picture of what it's going to be like when children play with snakes and when lions lie down with lambs and, and leopards and calves. It's the world of Ezekiel's great vision of a perfect temple 
chapters 40 to 48. It's the world of Zechariah's picture in chapter 14 where he says the whole world is going to be holy to the Lord. The whole earth is going to be like a temple to the Lord. Zephaniah's prophecy of chapter 3 verses 14 to 20. A joyful, victorious people settled in their own land. All of these prophets were looking forward towards that day, that day, that day. And notice the various things that Amos says is going to happen on that day. Number one, verse 11, a king will be restored. In that day, a king will be restored. I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Now, there's a clear reference here and an unclear reference. The clear reference is raising up David, David's line. You remember David as he started to... um, expand his kingdom he said to Nathan the prophet I'd like to build a temple for God and Nathan said go for it he made the prophet's big mistake he forgot to ask God so as he's leaving God says turn around different uh, message to David the message is no you're not going to be able to build it your son will build it but I'll tell you what David you will not build a house for me but I will build a house for you and one of your descendants will sit on the throne forever and ever and ever God is going to rebuild, he's going to fulfill that promise that he made to David. And so Isaiah says that the shoot from the stump of Jesse will be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And so the angel comes along and says to Mary, listen, you can have a child. He will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high God. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. You see, Amos, in verse 11 of chapter 9, promises Jesus, the Messiah, the king, the, the fallen booth of David is going to be raised when, when Jesus sits. Why a booth? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, you'd expect something more substantial. You know, the city, the throne. Because he definitely talks later on about a city. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it. So obviously he's talking about the city of the king. Why, why a booth? Only suggestion I can make is the Feast of the Tabernacles. The Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths celebrated God's deliverance. So maybe what what Amos is doing here, what God is doing here, is he is connecting the king with deliverance. So it's the booth of David because it's going to be God is going to deliver again more powerfully his people. And so first of all, we find that there's going to be a king established on the throne. David will, David's son, David's greater son, will reign. God will raise up his king. The second blessing that God promises in verse 12 is that all the nations will be joined. Verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares Jehovah who does this. Notice that this king is not just king of Jerusalem, but king of the nations of the earth. He speaks about the remnant of Edom. Now, the remnant of Edom, why Edom? Well, two reasons. Number one, Edom is an enemy of Israel. Obadiah, the next book in the Bible, is written. It's a one-chap book. Chap book. (laughs) That's short for chapter book. It's a one-chapter book that is written entirely against Edom. All right? So Edom is, on the one hand, the enemy of Israel. But what is Edom historically tracing back? He's brother of of, of Israel. He's Esau and Jacob. Brothers. Why the remnant of um, of Eden, I think what, what is being promised here is that there's going to be a, a restoration between people who, they're enemies, but really they're brothers. God is going to take 
a division in the past which has occurred and he's going to bring it back together. God is going to restore. And I so appreciated Alan's choice of Acts chapter 15. Because Acts chapter 15, I don't know if you picked up that James quoted from Amos. When James heard about what was happening amongst the Gentiles, James says, you know, let me tell you guys, God is fulfilling Amos chapter 9 in our presence because the Gentiles are coming to Christ. So there's a sense in which the nations are being joined in the church, in the rule of Christ, in the heart of Christians who submit to him in the gospel. But I think that this is bigger than that because there's an already and not yet. There's a, yes, that's the fulfillment, but that's not the full fulfillment because this king is so great that he is going to bring together enmities. He is going to heal wounds. He's going to restore peace even amongst those who have been at war for centuries. And that's why I think Isaiah chapter 9, remember that picture in Isaiah chapter 9, the wolf and the lamb, the calf and the young lion, the little child and the serpent, Everything and everybody reconciled under the rule of this great king. And notice briefly as we move on from verse 12, it's not just Edom. God specifically mentions Edom, the brother who was estranged, who became an enemy, who is now restored. But he goes on to say, all of the nations who are called by my name. From all of the nations, God is going to call his people. Not just Israel, not just Judah, not just descendants in the flesh of Abraham. But out of all of the nations will come the children of Abraham. The nations will be joined. Thirdly, verse 13, the earth will be blessed. The earth will be blessed. Behold, days are coming, declares Jehovah, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. The Messiah's view is in rain here. We saw that in verse 11. In verse 11, the Messiah is the second David. I think here in verse 15, the Messiah is the second Adam. Second David, he rules. Second Adam, he he rejuvenates, he farms. (laughs) He farms. You heard me right, he farms. Adam's given the garden. Look after this world. Adam's messed up so badly. This king's not going to mess up. And so you have this wonderful picture in verse 13 of of the fruitfulness of the earth. The earth that was given to Adam and Adam failed. Second Adam comes along and he is going to bless the earth. The, the, The Lord here speaks about a day when the person who's taking off the first crop will have so much of a crop to take off that he cannot finish reaping it before the plowman coming behind him says, hurry up, buddy. I've got the next crop to put in. How many people with any sort of agricultural background? Doesn't that sound great? (laughs) Such a harvest that you're saying, come on, get that crop off. The next crop's got to go in. That's the picture. The treader of grapes, you know, haven't even finished treading out last season's grapes. And the bundle from this season is about to be thrown in. Grape treaders overtaking grape planters. Grape planters overtaking grape treaders. There's so much abundance If you want to just put in your notes, we won't look there, but Psalm 72 is the picture of the reign of the great king. And in its original form, Psalm 72 is probably written about either David or Solomon, but it's ultimately written about Jesus. And it just speaks about the impact of Jesus and his effect upon the world of humans and of nature. And then a lovely picture in the second part of verse 13. And the treader of grapes, sorry, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills 
will be dissolved. As though wine replaces the dew. Wine in the Bible is a wonderful symbol of joy and life and vitality and blessing. By the way, this is one of the reasons why I'm not quite such a consistent Baptist as some of you think. Because I'm going to giggle at some of my um, teetotaling, abstaining Baptist friends as I do this on the grass. And enjoy the wine that God has produced. It's a wonderful picture here. The wine falling like dew and then the wine just flowing in the rivers. Um, Don't overdo it. Don't overdo it. But it's a picture of just such abundance. If he is the new David, the better David, he's the better Adam as well. And then verses 14 and 15, the people will be free and secure. 14 and 15, the people will be free and secure. Also, I'm sure God smiled here. I will restore the captivity of my people Israel. And they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. Part of the curse earlier on in the judgment was you'll build your cities, but you're not going to live in them. They will plant vineyards and they will drink their wine. Part of the curse earlier was you're going to plant vineyards and not drink of them. And they will make gardens and they will eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they will not again be rooted out from the land which I have given them, says the Lord, your God. God promises to plant his people back in the land and never again cause them to be uprooted, The people will be free and the people will be secure. And it's guaranteed because thus says Jehovah, your God. Now Jehovah, your God, throughout the book has been a somewhat scary phrase, but not here. It's a glorious phrase. Dear friends, it's appropriate for us to end Amos by turning our gaze to the Messiah. As you and I have walked through the horrible, dark, narrow street smelly and just that glimmer of light and we turned the corner and we saw the citadel that citadel the foundations go deeply into the Old Testament the foundations are the word became flesh the incarnation of Jesus Christ the walls are his perfect life he never did anything wrong there was no guile found in his lips the roof is his resurrection declared the Son of God by power through the resurrection of the dead. The, the lights of the Holy Spirit, the gift of God which he's poured out upon his people. It's a building that God designed before he even said, let there be light. And it's a building that's been erected by our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we walk away from Amos, that's the building that's closest in our memories. How can we avoid the first half of the book. We're sinners. You and I know we've committed these sins and others. How can we ever escape? I know you know this truth well, but can I remind you of it? The same king who will sit on that throne and allow us to enjoy all the blessings of his benevolent rule, which we don't deserve. The same king endured our punishment and our judgment, which he did not deserve. He has undergone the fierce day of God's judgment so that you and I can experience the delightful day of God's blessing. He faced the terror of the first half of chapter 9, unable to escape the hand of God's judgment and having his earth melted by the fire of the wrath of God. He faced that so that you and I could be freed 
and enjoy a world of abundance and know security and peace and be fulfilled and have a king who rules us and loves us and live in a garden that is abundant and full, never again to be uprooted, never again to be away from his wonderful reign. We enjoy all of this because he experienced all of that. And Amos ends in the delight of hope, the citadel of light, because Jesus is the Lamb of God. Oh yes, the lion roars, but hallelujah, the Lamb saves. Give you just a moment to quietly think and reflect and to worship and to praise and to adore and to love.